0: Today, rather than releasing a full episode, I've simply recorded and uploaded the first half of the Wikipedia page for the Stonewall Riots. This Nurmer Nurmer bonus content is intended to shed some light on the history of protests and gay rights in America. I only recorded the first half, but the entire history of Stonewall and other protests for civil rights are so important to understand, even though many are left out of the history books. I'm releasing this information as a bonus episode instead of a full episode to give you an opportunity to listen without the opinions and commentary our full episodes typically provide. With that said, this information comes from a variety of Wikipedia writers, and bias does inevitably exist in these bodies of work. Some quotes include antiquated language like homophile, transvestite, and homosexual,
1: but overall I feel it gives a pretty good account of the Stonewall Riots, what happened there.
0: Stonewall Riots the Stonewall Riots, also referred to as the Stonewall Uprising or the Stonewall Rebellion, were a series of spontaneous, violent demonstrations by members of the LGBT community in response to a police raid that began in the early morning hours of June 28, 1969 at the Stonewall Inn in the Greenwich Village neighborhood of Manhattan, New York City. Patrons of the Stonewall, other village lesbian and gay bars, and neighborhood street people fought back when the police became violent. The riots are widely considered to constitute one of the most important events leading to the gay liberation movement and the modern fight for LGBT rights in the United States. Gay Americans in the 1950s and 1960s faced an anti-gay legal system. Early homosexual groups in the U.S. sought to prove that gay people could be assimilated into society, and they favored non-confrontational education for homosexuals and heterosexuals alike. The last years of the 1960s, however, were contentious, as many social-slash-political movements were active, including the Civil Rights Movement, the counterculture of the 1960s, and the Anti-Vietnam War Movement. These influences, along with the liberal environment of Greenwich Village, served as catalysts for the Stonewall riots. Very few establishments welcomed gay people in the 1950s and 1960s. Those that did were often bars, although bar owners and managers were rarely gay. At the time, the Stonewall Inn was owned by the Mafia. It catered to an assortment of patrons and was known to be popular among the poorest and most marginalized people in the gay community. Butch lesbians, effeminate young men, drag queens, male prostitutes, transgender people and homeless youth. Police raids on gay bars were routine in the 1960s, but officers quickly lost control of the situation at the Stonewall Inn. Tensions between New York City police and gay residents of Greenwich Village erupted into more protests the next evening and again several nights later. Within weeks, village residents quickly organized into activist groups to concentrate efforts on establishing places for gay men and lesbians to be open about their sexual orientation without fear of being arrested. After the Stonewall riots, gay men and lesbians in New York City faced gender, race, class, and generational obstacles to becoming a cohesive community. Within six months, two gay activist organizations were formed in New York, concentrating on confrontational tactics, and three newspapers were established to promote rights for gay men and lesbians. A year after the uprising, to mark the anniversary on June 28, 1970, the first gay pride marches took place in New York, Los Angeles, and San Francisco. The anniversary of the riots was also commemorated in Chicago, and similar marches were organized in other cities. Within a few years, gay rights organizations were founded across the U.S. and the world. The Stonewall National Monument was established at the site in 2016. Today, LGBT pride events are held annually throughout the world toward the end of June to mark the Stonewall riots. Stonewall 50 World Pride NYC 2019 commemorated the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall uprising with city officials estimating 5 million attendees in Manhattan. And on June 6, 2019, New York City Police Commissioner James P. O'Neill rendered a formal apology on behalf of the New York Police Department for the actions of its officers at Stonewall in 1969. Background. Homosexuality in the 20th century United States. Following the social upheaval of World War II, Many people in the United States felt a fervent desire to restore the pre-war social era and hold off the forces of change, according to historian Barry Adam. Spurred by the national emphasis on anti-communism, Senator Joseph McCarthy conducted hearings searching for communists in the United States government, the U.S. Army, and other government funded agencies and institutions, leading to a national paranoia. Anarchists, communists, and other people deemed un-American and subversive were considered security risks. Gay men and lesbians were included in this list by the U.S. State Department on the theory that they were susceptible to blackmail. In 1950, a Senate investigation chaired by Clyde R. Hoey noted in a report, it is generally believed that those who engage in overt acts of perversion lack the emotional stability of a normal person's, and said all of the government's intelligence agencies are in complete agreement that sex perverts in government constitute security risks. Between 1947 and 1950, 1,700 federal job applications were denied, 4,380 people were discharged from the military, and 420 were fired from their government jobs for being suspected homosexuals. Throughout the 1950s and 1960s, the U.S. FBI and police departments kept lists of known homosexuals, their favorite establishments, and friends, and the U.S. Post Office kept tracks of which addresses where material pertaining to homosexuality was mailed state and local governments followed suit. Bars catering to gay men and lesbians were shut down and their customers were arrested and exposed in newspapers. Cities performed sweeps to rid neighborhoods, parks, bars, and beaches of gay people. They outlawed the wearing of opposite gender clothes and the universities expelled instructors suspected of being homosexual. In 1952, the American Psychiatric Association listed homosexuality in the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual as a mental disorder. A large scale study of homosexuality in 1962 was used to justify inclusion of the disorder as a supposed pathological hidden fear of the opposite sex caused by traumatic parent child relationships. This view was widely influential in the medical profession. In 1956, however, the psychologist Evelyn Hooker performed a study that compared the happiness and well-adjusted nature of self-identified homosexual men with heterosexual men and found no difference. Her study stunned the medical community and made her a hero to many gay men and lesbians, but homosexuality remained in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual until 1974. (music) Homophile Activism. In response to this trend two organizations formed independently of each other to advance the cause of gay men and lesbians and provide social opportunities where they could socialize without fear of being arrested los angeles area homosexuals created the mattachine society in 1950 in the home of communist activist harry hay their objectives were to unify homosexuals educate them provide leadership and assist sexual deviants with legal troubles Facing enormous opposition to their radical approach, in 1953, the Medichines shifted their focus to assimilation and respectability. They reasoned that they would change more minds about homosexuality by proving that gay men and lesbians were normal people, no different from heterosexuals. Soon after, several women in San Francisco met in their living rooms to form Daughters of Bilitis for lesbians although the eight women who created the dob initially came together to be able to have a safe place to dance as the dob grew they developed similar goals to the magazine and urged their members to assimilate into general society one of the first challenges to government repression came in 1953 an organization named one inc published a magazine called one the u.s postal service refused to mail its august issue with which concerned homosexual people in heterosexual marriages on the grounds that the material was obscene despite it being covered in brown paper wrapping the case eventually went to the supreme court which in 1958 ruled that one ink could mail its materials through the postal service homophile organizations as homosexual groups self-identified in this era grew in number and spread to the east coast gradually members of these organizations grew bolder Frank Kameny founded the Mattachine of Washington, D.C. He had been fired from the U.S. Army Map Service for being a homosexual and sued unsuccessfully to be reinstated. Kameny wrote that homosexuals were no different from heterosexuals, often aiming his efforts at mental health professionals, some of whom attended the Mattachine and DOB meetings telling members they were abnormal. In 1965, news on Cuban prison work camps for homosexuals inspired Mattachine, New York, and D.C. to organize protests at the United Nations and the White House. Similar demonstrations were then held at other government buildings. The purpose was to protest the treatment of gay people in Cuba and U.S. employment discrimination. These pickets shocked many gay people and upset some of the leadership of the Mattachine and the DOB. At the same time, demonstrations in the civil rights movement and opposition to the Vietnam War all grew in prominence, frequency, and severity throughout the 1960s as did their confrontations with police forces. (music) Earlier Resistance and Riots on the outer fringes of the few small gay communities were people who challenged gender expectations. They were effeminate men and masculine women, or people who dressed and lived in contrast to their gender assigned at birth, either part or full-time. Contemporaneous nomenclature classified them as transvestites, and they were most visible representations of sexual minorities. They belied the carefully crafted image portrayed by the medicine society and DOB that asserted homosexuals were respectable, normal people. The Madison and DOB considered the trials of being arrested for wearing clothing of the opposite gender as parallel to the struggles of homophile organizations, similar but distinctly different. Gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender people staged a small riot at the Cooper Donuts Cafe in Los Angeles in 1959 in response to police harassment. In a larger 1966 event in San Francisco, drag queens, hustlers, and trans women were sitting in Compton's cafeteria when the police arrived to arrest people appearing to be physically male who were dressed as women. A riot ensued with the cafeteria patrons slinging cups, plates, and saucers, and breaking the plexiglass windows in front of the restaurants, and returning several days later to smash the windows again after they were replaced. Professor Susan Stryker classifies the Compton Cafeteria riot as an act of anti-transgender discrimination rather than an act of discrimination against sexual orientation and connects the uprising to issues of gender, race, and class that were being downplayed by homophile organizations. It marks the beginning of transgender activism in San Francisco. Greenwich Village. The Manhattan neighborhoods of Greenwich Village and Harlem were home to sizable gay and lesbian populations after World War I when people who had served in the military took advantage of the opportunity to settle in larger cities. The enclaves of gay men and lesbians, described by a newspaper story as short-haired women and long-haired men, developed a distinct subculture through the following two decades. Prohibition inadvertently benefited gay establishments as drinking alcohol was pushed underground along with other behaviors considered immoral. New York City passed new laws against homosexuality in public and private businesses, but because alcohol was in high demand, speakeasies and impromptu drinking establishments were so numerous and temporary that authorities were unable to police them all. However, police raids continued, resulting in the closure of iconic establishments such as Eve's Hangout in 1926. The social repression of the 1950s resulted in a cultural revolution in Greenwich Village. A cohort of poets, later named The Beat Poets, wrote about the evils of the social organization at the time, glorifying anarchy, drugs, and hedonistic pleasures over unquestioning social compliance, consumerism, and closed-mindedness. Of them, Allen Ginsberg and William S. Burroughs, both Greenwich Village residents, also wrote bluntly and honestly about homosexuality. Their writings attracted sympathetic liberal-minded people as well as homosexuals looking for a community. By the early 1960s, a campaign to rid New York City of gay bars was in full effect by order of Mayor Robert F. Wagner Jr., who was concerned about the image of the city in preparation for the 1964 World's Fair. The city revoked the liquor licenses of the bars, and undercover police officers worked to entrap as many homosexual men as possible. Entrapment usually consisted of an undercover officer who found a man in a bar or public park engaged him in conversation. If the conversation headed towards the possibility that they might leave together, or the officer bought the man a drink, he was arrested for solicitation. One story in the New York Post described an arrest in a gym locker room where the officer grabbed his crotch moaning and a man who asked him if he was alright was arrested. Few lawyers would defend cases as undesirable as these and some of those lawyers kicked back their fees to the arresting officer. The Mattachine Society succeeded in getting newly elected mayor John Lindsay to end the campaign of police entrapment in New York City. They had a difficult time with the New York State Liquor Authority. While no laws prohibited serving homosexuals, courts allowed the SLA discretion in approving and revoking liquor licenses for businesses that might become disorderly. Despite the high population of gay men and lesbians who called Greenwich Village home, Very few places existed other than bars where they were able to congregate openly without being harassed or arrested. In 1966, the New York Magazine held a sip-in at Greenwich Village Bar named Julius, which was frequented by gay men to illustrate the discrimination homosexuals faced. None of the bars frequented by gay men and lesbians were owned by gay people. Almost all of them were owned and controlled by organized crime, who treated the regulars poorly, watered down the liquor, and overcharged for drinks. However, they also paid off police to prevent frequent raids. The Stonewall Inn, located at 51 and 53 Christopher Street, along with several other establishments in the city, was owned by the Genovese crime family. In 1966, three members of the mafia invested $3,500 to turn the Stonewall Inn into a gay bar after it had been a restaurant and a nightclub for heterosexuals. Once a week, the police officer would collect envelopes of cash as a payoff known as a gayola, and the Stonewall Inn had no liquor license, it had no running water behind the bar. Dirty glasses were run through tubs of water and immediately reused. There were no fire exits, and the toilets overran consistently. Though the bar was not used for prostitution, drug sales and other cash transactions took place. It was the only bar for gay men in New York City where dancing was allowed. Dancing was its main draw since its reopening as a gay club. Visitors to the Stonewall Inn in 1969 were greeted by a bouncer who inspected them through a peephole in the door. The legal drinking age was 18, and to avoid unwillingly letting in undercover police who were called the Lily Law, Alice Bluegown, or Betty Badge, visitors would have to be known by the doorman or look gay. An entrance fee on the weekends was $3, for which the customer received two tickets that could be exchanged for two drinks. Patrons were required to sign their names in a book to prove the bar was a private bottle club but rarely signed their real names. There were two dance floors in the stone wall. The interior was painted black, making it very dark inside with pulsing gel lights or black lights. If police were spotted, regular white lights were turned on, signaling that everyone should stop dancing or touching. In the rear of the bar was a smaller room frequented by queens. It was one of two bars where effeminate men who wore makeup and teased their hair, though dressed in men's clothing, could go. Only a few men in full drag were allowed in by the bouncers. The customers were 98% male, but a few lesbians sometimes came to the bar. Younger, homeless, adolescent males who slept in nearby Christopher Park would often try to get in so customers would buy them drinks. The age of the clientele ranged between upper teens and early 30s, and the racial mix was evenly distributed among white, black, and Hispanic patrons. Because of its even mix of people, its location, and the attraction of dancing, the Stonewall Inn was known by many as THE gay bar in the city. Police raids on gay bars were frequent, occurring on average once a month for each bar. Many bars kept extra liquor in a secret panel behind the bar or in a car down the block to facilitate resuming business as quickly as possible if alcohol was seized. Bar management usually knew about raids beforehand due to police tip-offs, and raids occurred early enough in the evening that businesses could commence after the police had finished. During a typical raid, the lights were turned on and customers were lined up and their identification cards checked. Those without identification or dressed in full drag were arrested. Others were allowed to leave. Some of the men, including those in drags, used their draft cards as identification. Women were required to wear three pieces of feminine clothing and would be arrested if found not wearing them. Employees and management of the bars were also typically arrested. The period immediately before June 28, 1969 was marked by frequent raids of local bars, including a raid at the Stonewall Inn on the Tuesday before the riots, and the closing of the Checkerboard, the Telestar, and two other clubs in Greenwich Village. <music> Riots, Police Raid. At 1.20 a.m. on Saturday, June 28, 1969, four plainclothes policemen in dark suits, two patrol officers in uniform, and Detective Charles Smythe and Deputy Inspector Seymour Pine arrived at Stonewall Inn's double doors and announced police were taking the place. Stonewall employees do not recall being tipped off that a raid was to occur that night, as was the custom. According to Duberman, there was a rumor that one might happen, but since it was later than raids generally took place, Stonewall management thought the tip was inaccurate. Historian David Carter presents information indicating that the Mafia owners of the Stonewall and the manager were blackmailing wealthier customers, particularly those who worked in the financial district. They appeared to be making more money from extortion than they were from liquor sales in the bar. Carter deduces that when the police were unable to receive kickbacks from blackmail and the theft of negotiable bonds facilitated by pressuring gay Wall Street customers, they decided to close the Stonewall Inn permanently. Two undercover policewomen and two undercover policemen had entered in the bar earlier that evening to gather visual evidence as the Public Morals Squad waited outside for the signal. Once inside, they called for backup from the 6th Precinct using the bar's pay telephone. The music was turned off, and the main lights were turned on. Approximately 205 people were in the bar that night. Patrons who had never experienced a police raid were confused. A few who realized what was happening began to run for doors and windows in the bathrooms, but police barred the doors. Michael Fader remembered, "...things happened so fast, you kind of got caught not knowing. All of a sudden there were police there, and we were told to all get in lines and to have our identification ready to be let out of the bar." The raid did not go as planned standard procedure was to line up the patrons check their identifications and have female police officers take customers dressed as women to the bathroom to verify their sex upon which many. People appearing to be physically male and dressed as women would be arrested those dressed as women that night refused to go with the officers men in line began to refuse to produce their identification. The police decided to take everyone present to the police station after separating those cross dressing in a room in the back of the bar. Maria Ritter then known as male to her family recalled my biggest fear was that I would get arrested my second biggest fear was that my picture would be in a newspaper on a television report in my mother's dress. Both patrons and police recalled the sense of discomfort spread very quickly spurred by police who began to assault some of the lesbians by feeling some of them up inappropriately while frisking them. The police were to transport the bars alcohol in patrol wagons. 28 cases of beer and 19 bottles of hard liquor were seized, but the patrol wagons had not yet arrived, so patrons were required to wait in line about 15 minutes. Those who were not arrested were released from the front door, but they did not leave as quickly as usual. Instead, they stopped outside in a crowd and began to grow and watch. Within 15 minutes, between 100 and 150 people had congregated outside, some after they were released from inside the Stonewall, and some after noticing the police cars in the crowd. Although the police forcefully pushed or kicked some patrons out of the bar, some customers released by police performed for the crowd by posing and saluting the police in an exaggerated fashion. The crowd's applause encouraged them further. Wrists were limp, hair was primped, and reactions to the applause were classic. When the first patrol wagon arrived, Inspector Pine recalled that the crowd, most of whom were homosexual, had grown to at least ten times the number of people who were arrested, and they all became very quiet confusion over radio communication delayed the arrival of a second wagon. The police began escorting mafia members into the first wagon to the cheers of the bystanders. Next, regular employees were loaded into the wagon. A bystander shouted, Gay power! and someone began singing We Shall Overcome, and the crowd reacted with amusement and general good humor mixed with growing intensive hostility. An officer shoved a transvestite who responded by hitting him on the head with her purse as the crowd began to boo. Author Edmund White, who had been passing by, recalled, Everyone's restless, angry, and high-spirited. No one has a slogan, no one even has an attitude, but something's brewing. Pennies, then beer bottles, were thrown at the wagon as a rumor spread through the crowd that patrons still inside the bar were being beaten. A scuffle broke out when a woman in handcuffs was escorted from the door of the bar to the waiting police wagon several times. She escaped repeatedly and fought with four of the police, swearing and shouting for about ten minutes. Described as a typical New York butch and a dyke stone butch, she had been hit on the head by an officer with a baton for, as one witness claimed, complaining that her handcuffs were too tight. Bystanders recalled that the woman, whose identity remains unknown, Dormi de Loveri has been identified by some, including herself, as the woman, but accounts vary, sparked the crowd to fight when she looked at bystanders and shouted, Why don't you guys do something? After an officer picked her up and heaved her into the back of the wagon, the crowd became a mob and went berserk. It was at that moment that the scene became explosive. Violence breaks out. The police tried to restrain some of the crowd, knocking a few people down, which incited bystanders even more. Some of those handcuffed in the wagon escaped when police left them unattended, deliberately according to some witnesses. As the crowd tried to overturn the police wagon, two police cars and the wagon with few slashed tires left immediately, with Inspector Pine urging them to return as soon as possible. The commotion attracted more people who learned what was happening. Someone in the crowd declared that the bar had been raided because they didn't pay off the cops, to which someone else yelled, let's pay them off. Coins sailed through the air toward the police as the crowds shouted, pigs. Beer cans were thrown, and police lashed out, dispersing some of the crowd who found a construction site nearby with stacks of bricks. The police, outnumbered by between 500 and 600 people, grabbed several people, including singer and mentor Bob Dylan, Dave Van Ronk, who had been attracted to the revolt from a bar two doors away from the Stonewall. Though Van Ronk was not gay, he experienced police violence when he participated in anti-war demonstrations. As far as I was concerned, anybody who'd stand against the cops was all right by me, and that's why I stayed in. Every time you turned around, the cops were pulling some outrage or another. Van Rook was one of the 13 arrested that night. Ten police officers, including two policewomen, barricaded themselves. Van Rook, Howard Smith, a column writer for the Village Voice, and several handcuffed detainees inside the Stonewall Inn for their own safety. Multiple accounts of the riot assert there were no pre-existing organization or apparent cause for the demonstration. What ensued was spontaneous. Michael Fader explained, We had a collective feeling that we'd had enough of this kind of shit. It wasn't anything tangible anyone said to anyone else. It was just a kind of everything over the years had come to a head that one particular night in that one particular place, and it was not an organized demonstration. Everyone in the crowd felt that we were never going to go back. It was like the last straw. It was time to reclaim something that had always been taken from us. All kinds of people, all different reasons, but mostly it was total outrage, anger, sorrow, everything combined and everything kind of ran its course. It was the police who were doing most of the destruction. We were really trying to get back in and break free. And we felt that we had freedom at last, or freedom to at least show that we demanded freedom. We weren't going to be walking meekly into the night by letting them shove us around. It's like standing your ground for the first time and in a really strong way, and that's what caught the police by surprise. There was something in the air, freedom a long time overdue, and we're going to fight for it. It took different forms, but the bottom line was we weren't going to go away, and we didn't. The only known photograph taken during the first night of the riots shows the homeless youth who slept in nearby Christopher Park scuffling with the police. The Mattachine Society newsletter a month later offered its explanation of why the riots occurred. It catered to a large group of people who were not welcome in or cannot afford other places of homosexual social gathering. The Stonewall became home to these kids. When it was raided, they fought for it. That and the fact that they had nothing to lose other than the most tolerant and broad-minded gay place in town explains why. Garbage cans, garbage, bottles, rocks, and bricks were hurled at the building, breaking the windows. Witnesses attest that flame queens, hustlers, and gay street kids, the most outcast people in the gay community, were responsible for the first volley of projectiles, as well as the uprooting of a parking meter used as a battering ram on the doors of the Stonewall Inn. Sylvia Rivera, a self-identified street queen, remembered, You've been treating us like shit for all these years? Uh Uh-uh. Now it's our turn. It was one of the greatest moments in my life. The mob lit a garbage on fire and stuffed it through the broken windows as the police grabbed a fire hose because it had no water pressure the hose was ineffective in dispersing the crowd and only seemed to encourage them (music) escalation the tactical patrol force TPF of New York City Police Department arrived to free the police trapped inside the stonewall. One officer's eye was cut and a few others were bruised from being struck by flying debris. Bob Kohler, who was walking his dog by the stonewall that night, saw the TPF arrive. I had been in enough riots to know the fun was over. The cops were totally humiliated. This never ever happened. They were angrier than I guess they had ever been because everybody else had rioted. But the fairies were not supposed to riot. No group had ever forced cops to retreat before so the anger was enormous. I mean, they wanted to kill. With larger numbers, police detained anybody they could and put them in patrol wagons to go to jail. Though Inspector Pine recalled, Fights erupted with the transvestites who wouldn't go into the patrol wagon. His recollection was corroborated by another witness across the street who said, all I could see about who was fighting was that it was the transvestites and they were fighting furiously. The TPF formed a balance and attempted to clear the streets by marching slowly and pushing the crowd back. The mob openly mocked the police. The crowd cheered, started impromptu kick lines, and sang to the tune of ta ra ra boom We are the Stonewall Girls. We wear our hair and curls. We don't wear underwear we show our pubic hair lucy and trusca reported in the village voice a stagnant situation there brought on some gay tomfoolery in the form of a chorus line facing the line of helmeted and club carrying cops just as the line got into full kick routine the tpf advanced again and cleared the crowd of screaming gay power down christopher to seventh avenue One participant who had been in Stonewall during the raid recalled, The police rushed us, and that's when I realized this is not a good thing to do, because they got me back with a nightstick. Another account stated, I just can't ever get that sight out of my mind. The cops with the nightsticks and the kick line on the other side. It was the most amazing thing. And all of a sudden, that kick line, which I guess was a spoof on the machismo, I think that's when I felt rage. Because people were getting smashed with bats, and for what? A kick line. Craig Rodwell, owner of the Oscar Wilde Memorial Bookshop, reported police chase participants through the crooked streets only to see them appear around the next corner behind the police. Members of the mob stopped cars, overturning one of them to block Christopher Street. Jack Nichols and Leigh Clark, in their column printed in screwed, declared that massive crowds of angry protesters chased the police for blocks, screaming, catch them. By 4 a.m., the streets had nearly been cleared. Many people sat on stoops or gathered nearby in Christopher Park throughout the morning, dazed in disbelief at what had transpired. Many witnesses remembered the surreal and eerie quiet that descended upon Christopher Street, though there continued to be electricity in the air. One commented, There was a certain beauty in the aftermath of the riot. It was obvious, at least to me, that a lot of people really were gay, and, you know, this was our street. Thirteen people had been arrested. Some in the crowd were hospitalized, and four police officers were injured. Almost everything in the Stonewall Inn was broken. Inspector Pine had intended to close and dismantle the Stonewall Inn that night. Payphones, toilets, mirrors, jukeboxes, and cigarette machines were smashed, possibly in the riot and possibly by the police. (music) A second night of rioting. During the siege of the Stonewall, Craig Rodwell called the New York Times, the New York Post, and the Daily News to inform them of what was happening. All three papers covered the riots. The Daily News placed coverage on the front page. News of the riots spread quickly through Greenwich Village, fueled by rumors that had been organized by the Students for a Democratic Society, the Black Panthers, or triggered by a homosexual police officer whose roommate went in dancing at the Stonewall against the officers' wishes. All day, Saturday, June 28th, people came to stare at the burned and blackened Stonewall Inn. Graffiti appeared on the walls of the bar, declaring drag power, they invaded our rights, support gay power, and legalize gay bars, along with accusations of police looting and regarding the status of the bar, we are open. The next night, rioting again surrounded Christopher Street. Participants remembered differently which night was more frantic or violent. Many of the same people returned from the previous evening, hustlers, street youths, and queens, but they were joined by police provocateurs, curious bystanders, and even tourists. Remarkable to many was the sudden exhibition of homosexual affection in public, as described by one witness, from going to places where you had to knock on a door and speak to someone through a peephole in order to get in. We were just out. We were in the streets." Thousands of people had gathered in front of the stone wall, which had opened again, choking Christopher Street until the crowd spilled into adjoining blocks. The throng surrounded buses and cars, harassing the occupants until they either admitted they were gay or indicated their support for the demonstrators. Sylvia Rivera saw a friend of hers jump on a nearby car to drive through. The crowd rocked the car back and forth, terrifying its occupants. Another of Rivera's friends, Marsha P. Johnson, an African-American street queen, climbed a lamppost and dropped a heavy bag onto the hood of a police car, shattering the windshield. As on the previous evening, fires were started in garbage cans throughout the neighborhood. More than 100 police were present from the 4th, 5th, 6th, and 9th precincts, but after 2 a.m., the TPF arrived again. Kick lines and police chases waxed and waned. When police captured demonstrators whom the majority of witnesses described as sissies or swishes, the crowd surged to recapture them. Street battling ensued again until 4 a.m. Beat poet and longtime Greenwich Village resident Allen Ginsberg lived on Christopher Street and happened upon the jubilant chaos. After he learned of the riot that had occurred the previous evening, he stated, Gay power, isn't that great? It's about time we did something to assert ourselves. And visited the open Stonewall Inn for the first time. While walking home, he declared to Lucy and Truska, you know, the guys there were so beautiful. They've lost that wounded look that they've had all these 10 years. (music) Leaflets, press coverage, and more violence. Activity in Greenwich Village was sporadic on Monday and Tuesday, partly due to rain. Police and village residents had a few altercations as both groups antagonized each other. Craig Rodwell and his partner, Fred Sargent, took the opportunity the morning after the first riot to print and distribute 5,000 leaflets, one of them reading, Get the Mafia and the Cops Out of Gay Bars. The leaflets called for gay people to own their own establishments, for a boycott of the Stonewall and other mafia-owned bars, and for public pressure on the mayor's office to investigate the intolerable situation. Not everyone in the gay community considered the revolt a positive development. To many older homosexuals and many members of the Madagene Society who had worked throughout the 1960s to promote homosexuals as no different from heterosexuals, the display of violence and effeminate behavior was embarrassing. Randy Wicker, who had marched in the first gay picket lines before the White House in 1965, said the screaming queens formed chorus lines and kicking went against everything I wanted people to think about homosexuals, that we were a bunch of drag queens in the village acting disorderly and tacky and cheap. Others found the closing of Stonewall Inn, termed a sleaze joint, as advantageous to the village. On Wednesday, however, the Village Voice ran reports of the riots written by Howard Smith and Lucian Truscott that included unflattering descriptions of the events and its participants. Forces of faggotry, limp wrists, and Sunday fag follies. A mob descended upon Christopher Street once again and threatened to burn down the offices of the Village Voice. Also in the mob of between 500 and 1,000 were other groups that had unsuccessful confrontations with the police and were curious how the police were defeated in this situation. Another explosive street battle took place with injuries to demonstrators and police alike, looting in local shops and arrests of five people. The incidents on Wednesday night lasted about an hour and were summarized by one witness. The word is out. Christopher Street shall be liberated. The fags have had it with oppression. aftermath. The feeling of urgency spread throughout Greenwich Village even to people who had not witnessed the riots. Many who were moved by the rebellion attended organizational meetings sensing an opportunity to take action. On July 4th, 1969, the Madagine Society performed its annual picketing in front of the Independence Hall in Philadelphia called the Annual Reminder. Organizers Craig Broadwell, Frank Kameny, Randy Wicker, Barbara Giddings, and Kay LaHusen, who had all participated for several years took a bus along with other picketers from New York City to Philadelphia since 1965 the pickets had been very controlled women wore skirts and men wore suits and ties and all marched quietly in organized lines this year Rodwell remembered feeling restricted by the rules Kameny had set when two women spontaneously held hands Kameny broke them apart saying none of that none of that Rodwell however convinced about 10 couples to hold hands the hand-holding couples made Kemeny furious, but they earned more press attention than all of the previous marches. Participant Lily Vinces remembered, It was clear that things were changing. People who had felt oppressed now felt empowered. Rodwell returned to New York City, determined to change the established quiet, meek ways of getting attention. One of his first priorities was planning Christopher Street Liberation Day. listening. Please leave a five-star review and let me know who or what to cover in future episodes and bonus episodes. All the best. Nerma Nermar.
1: All right, I wanted to make a podcast for a really, really, really long time before I was actually able to, and the thing that allowed me to do it was Anchor. Anchor, you can edit the podcast, you can record the podcast, you can invite friends to join it, all on the Anchor app. So you need a phone or a computer, You can go to the library, log in there if you really needed to. You could use an old iPod Touch. It's the most accessible way that I have found to make a podcast because I really thought that you had to spend a bunch of money and get a bunch of production equipment and whatever in order to do it. But when I figured out I could use Anchor as a platform to host the podcast, they distribute it for me. Um, You probably already know this if you've ever listened to an episode before or if you have seen the description with the tag that says that I make it on Anchor. If you want to do this, if you want to get into it, it's super easy. All you have to do is go to anchor.fm or download the free Anchor app, and I swear it's free. Like, it's it's so easy. It's the easiest, freest, most free way to host a podcast.